You're listening to the Journey to Launch podcast, a conversation on economic opportunity, race, privilege, and the fire movement with Brian from Done by 40. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast with your host, Jamila Souffrant. As a money expert who walks her talk, she helps brave journeyers like you get out of debt, save, invest, and build real wealth. Join her on the journey to launch to financial freedom in, in five, four, three, two, one. Hey, 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 journeyers. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast. I am Jamila, your chief launch officer, taking you to financial freedom and independence. And as I do every week, I'm bringing you what I hope you feel to believe is a very insightful, encouraging, and just conversation that helps you further give you feel for your rocket to financial freedom and independence. Okay, before we hop into the episode, I want to tell you about today's sponsor, Empower. One of the most asked questions from listeners that I get is, how can I save more and reach my goals? And I usually reply with, you have to make it easy and automated as much as possible. So I'm always on the lookout for solutions for you to do just that, make saving easy and automatic. Today's sponsor, Empower, that's E-M-P-O-W-E-R, is an awesome mobile app that makes saving and managing your money the easiest thing you can do all day. For starters, Empower has an automated savings feature. You can simply tell the app your weekly savings target, and every day, Empower studies your income and spending and automatically knows when to move the right amount of money into your savings account where you're less likely to spend it. It's called autosave. Just set it and forget it. You even get access to a human coach that you can text for personalized finance questions. Download Empower, that's E-M-P-O-W-E-R, in the App Store or Play Store. I downloaded the app myself because you know that I have to give things a try before I recommend them, and I really like it. It's super simple and easy to get started. And for journeyers, that's you, you get $5 when you use the offer code Journey and reach your savings goals. Visit empower.me slash journey for more details. So today I'm talking with Brian from Done by 40. So Brian, I came across and we were, we're like Twitter friends. Um, I'm not on Twitter much because honestly, Twitter moves too fast for me. I can't think fast enough or in succinct enough sentences to <laughs> work with Twitter, but I'm on Twitter too. And so I kind of met Brian through Twitter and I've always, um, just like, liked his stuff and he has a great blog where he talks about his journey to reach financial independence. And he also gets real, like, about just the conversations around privilege and race and economic opportunity. So I thought that it would be great to have Brian on the podcast to kind of just have a laid back conversation around all those important topics. Now, before we hop into just more about the episode and Brian, you can go to journeytolaunch.com slash episode 140 if you want any of the episode show notes. So anything that we talk about, like links to things, you can go to journeytolaunch.com slash episode 140. And there you can just find links that we mentioned in the podcast. And as always, if you are enjoying the content, please don't forget to tell a friend to tell a friend. I'm always excited when you tag me on social media or tell me that you share this podcast and the platform journey to launch with someone that you care about. So continue to do that. And then also don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to the journey to launch podcast. Now, without further ado, let's hop into this conversation with Brian from done by 40. Hey, journeyers back with another, what I think just already from our pre-conversation, Brian, I think this is going to be an amazing episode as they usually are. So I'm excited to have you on and to finally talk to you instead of like on Twitter land, which is where we originally met. Absolutely. I'm so happy to be here. And yes, it's going to be an amazing episode, of course. Yeah. So uh, just for a background about you and just our conversation, but I do want to just quickly touch upon the fact that I think we had met a couple years ago online. I was telling Brian that I'm not like I'm on Twitter, but not really because it moves too fast. And by the time I want to jump in the conversation, it's already gone onto another thing. I was like, okay, forget it. <laughs> but I know you are, you're there. Um, and we met because you were first, I think it was like two years ago, maybe it was like at the beginning of my um, podcasting journey. 
you like had a like diversity and fire discussion or it was something about diversity. I remember I joined the panel and we we're talking about it and I was like, it was just refreshing that there were people online who were like talking about financial independence and money in a way in which it was looking at all sides and different types of people who were trying to accomplish this and what may be the factors that may hold them back or what they would need more of in this community so they can like find themselves and also like succeed. So I thought that was really refreshing and I'm glad that you're on the podcast now because I know we're going to get into some good conversations around just like money is financial independence possible for the middle class, which is like a huge thing for a lot of people listening. And so I'm excited just to get into it with you. I'm excited too. Yeah. And so you're also anonymous. I love that I have people on, especially I think anonymous is good for a lot of reasons because it allows people to really be candid <laughs> and maybe say some things they wouldn't say otherwise. And so I want you to kind of just tell everyone about kind of your journey to financial independence, where you currently are on that path. Your whole title is done by 40. So let's just dive into that and then we'll get into more it. of the other stuff. You got it. Yeah. So uh, I started blogging in 2012 and just kind of back of the envelope mathed it to say like, I think we can do this in like eight or nine years. So that's where done by 40 came, came from. And I guess our blog's a little bit different than a lot of the fire blogs because the entire time that we've been working towards financial independence, uh, my wife has been pursuing her PhD. So that provides its own set of unique benefits and, and challenges. We started out as like Dave Ramsey folks, but then after we went through all the baby steps, we realized that it wasn't exactly what we were into and we weren't really as into today personally. So mm-hmm. we discovered financial independence. We kind of got into rental properties and I switched careers. I originally went to school to be a teacher. I, I worked at a university during the day and got my degree at night and thought I was going to go into teaching. But after teaching for a hot second, I realized like this is it's not <laughs> what I thought it was. Um, mm-hmm. And it turns out I like negotiating with suppliers a lot more than I do negotiating with teenagers. So I went back into procurement. That's the field that I'm in right now. And then my wife just got her PhD this May and started her new job yesterday. And that also means that our son uh, started daycare yesterday. So oh, wow. Okay. A lot of so- changes there. So that's changed our... We have new expenses, obviously, with the baby and with daycare, and then obviously new income, uh, which is fantastic. So anyway, that's us in a nutshell. We really like traveling. We like playing board games. We like going on walks with our golden retriever. That's mm-hmm. us. Yeah. And so where are you now? So you said you started this what in 2012 with the goal that you'd reach financial independence by 40. Is this your whole family's financial independence goal? So yeah, that this would be financial independence for all of us. And we... I guess the way view it is like all the money that we take in is our money and then all of our spending is like our spending. But that's just how we do it. We're aiming for financial independence by the last day I'm 40. I kind of gave myself a little wiggle room there. So that would be August of 2021. So we have a little under two years and I, I think we're on, I think we're on track to do it, you know, touch wood. Mm-hmm. And so with this goal, right, is the idea that your wife will continue working or you just wanted to have the option and it all just depends how you guys feel at that point? Well, I mean, I can't speak for her because she just started work yesterday. And I think, mm-hmm. I mean, it's so cool. I think that she might like to continue, which I would be totally fine with. I think for me, early retirement is part of the plan just because, you know, what I really want is more time with family, more time with friends, just spending that quality time with my loved ones. And I, and I think taking out that, you know, 50 hours a week of work is is a big, that's part of the equation for me. But if she wanted to keep working, totally fine. It's, it's just so new that I, I, I it's, it's weird just to say, I don't know, but I, I guess that's all right. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, and I guess that's what this journey affords you as you, you go on. It's just like, you can really literally create your own rules once you have these options available to you. Totally. Though I, I am dreading the internet whenever they find, if she decides to keep working, it's like, oh, I'm not really retired. Oh, oh yes. Oh. The financial independence police, they'd be like, that's you know not what? really, yeah. And God forbid you earn any money from anything that you're going to do if you, <laughs> but yeah, that's whatever. <laughs> yeah. So 
are you guys like on just the level of, are you frugal? Do you have like a targeted annual spend? Like for example, so for me, I already know that when we baked in financial independence, part of that actually involved my husband still working. But if he did decide not to want to work, we'd be able to do that too. But it was like, based on us like not really living a frugal life in New York city with three kids and a mortgage. Um, we wanted right. to spend money. So what is your financial independent spending look like or how even up to now, like, are you frugal? What's your levers on being able to reach your goals like this? So our spending has gone all over the place over this period of time because we paid off the mortgage on our first house, you know, Dave Ramsey baby steps. And then we were like, oh, no, opportunity costs are a thing. So then we took out another mortgage on the house and invested that money. And then same thing with we moved to this house and we had a big mortgage and we're like, we'll just keep the mortgage in in retirement because it's better to invest that money and earn higher than, you know, the mortgage rate. When we had the mortgage, uh, our spending last year was 53000 I think. And then we flipped again and paid off the mortgage recently. So now our spending is more in like the, the 35000 range, which sounds really low because it is, I mean, it's low. It just it has a big asterisk by it. You're like, yeah, but there's no mortgage. And people talk about the average budget. Of course, there's, there's rent or a mortgage or whatever. So it's, I like to think of it as like, it's a $50,000 budget. Minus the $15,000 mortgage. Right, so. right. And when you say you paid off your mortgage, so that's, is that driven from your income? You guys' oh, income yeah. that you're like earning a lot of money. And so I guess we're going to get into this because one of the things you said is that you were a teacher and you were like, okay, this is not cutting it. And then you switched to and get your degree in what? So my degree is in English because I wanted mm-hmm. to be an English teacher. And when I was working uh, in San Diego, my income was was very low. And that during that time, I wasn't thinking at all about financial independence. I was thinking about just like paying rent. How um, long ago was this, if you could remember, like how many years ago? So I worked there for the better part of a decade. It was like 2000 to 2009. I worked for, it was a public university. So I was making like starting in the 30s and I, and I left, it was like low 40s. And in San Diego, that is not a lot of money. And I actually took a pay cut to teach when I got a teaching job finally in Arizona. And I only taught for like part of one year. My salary was 30000 at that okay. point. But then yeah. I switched back to procurement. That's what I was doing during the day whenever I was going to classes at night was I was working in the procurement office just because any job at the university, you could, if you worked at the university full time, you could take free classes. And I was like, sign me up for that. I want that. So I went back to procurement. And started working, instead of working in the public sector, I went to work for a large corporation. And after a couple of years, I got a new job offer and went to another large corporation. And our income has really gone up during that time. And as soon as I started working in the private industry, that's when financial independence started to seem like something I was interested in because I had the income now to actually work towards it. And yeah. I mean, to put some specificity on it, you know, for most of, I mean, our income has gone up over this time, but for most of this journey, you know, we've been work, earning about double the median household income. And, and that's the driver for our financial independence journey. I think we're pretty frugal with a 50 or $35,000 budget. Yeah, we're frugal, I guess. But I mean, that's at the margins of what matters. The thing that's really gotten us home is mm-hmm. the income. Mm-hmm. Now I have some questions about your journey. So you, is that how you got your degree in procurement? And can you explain what exactly that is? Totally. So my degree is just in English. Like I read novels. Okay. Oh, right, right, about, right. But yeah. to get into the field, I was applying for like any job I could get at the university and they needed an administrative assistant at the front. And I was like, yeah, I'll do that job. That's no problem. But then after a year, they had an opening and I applied and I got to be a buyer it was a little bit of a pay bump. I think it was like low 30s from high 20s when I very first started. Uh, and that's what got me into the field. Procurement used to be called purchasing. So it's um, like sourcing, finding the right supplier, and then negotiating a contract and negotiating pricing with those suppliers to get the goods and services that the company needs at agreeable pricing and good contractual terms. Mm. So basically, you you were able to get a job doing that in the university and then yep. it, you're able to leverage that when you started looking for other jobs, but you went into the private sector when you started looking. Absolutely. And uh, my income went 
when like that's the thing like the the difference between public and private i guess i wasn't even really aware of it because when i first started what i really wanted was to get my degree and it wasn't so much just about the income i would have free bachelor's degree i want to have free teaching credential and classes there but then when we started looking at financial independence and even just working on the dave ramsey steps you know we realized what the problem was i was like we're not making I'm making a lot of money. So this is really hard to do. It's right. just like, I feel like I've cut the stuff I could cut. I feel like I have found the waste, but, um, I, it was I income. We were, that was, was income. We were well, stuck in first gear. Yeah. So it was also seeing opportunity. So how did you know that procurement was a viable way to earn more money? Did you know at the time when you started looking into that job, did you see someone with that job? And that was earning a lot more money and said, wow, like that's a viable source because a lot of people may be listening and maybe they're also stuck in a more lower paying job and they have some skill sets, right? I think you said you were good at negotiations. That's part of it. You kind of enjoy that. So how did you know that was a possibility? Because some people say, oh, I'm good at negotiation. So maybe I should be like a lawyer, right? Like how did you know that would be viable? I'll be honest. Whenever I first got into the field, like I said, I was just trying to get any job at the university at all to get the free degree. <laughs> so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I wish I could say it was strategic and long-term planning, but I was 20 years old and I had just dropped out of my first college back east and followed a girl out to California and then realized I should probably finish college uh-huh. at some point. Before I worked at the university, um, I had no car. I just moved to California. I think I had like a thousand dollars and I walked across the street and I just knocked on the Red Cross's front door and I was like, do you have any positions? And they let me be the admin assistant. It was the Red Cross WIC office, women, infants and children. And I went into training to do um, nutrition aid assistance for um, people in the program. Uh, so I did that during the day, and then I worked at Hollywood Video at night. So I was just working two <laughs> jobs to get enough for, like, a car down payment. Yeah. So then whenever someone told me, hey, you can you can push a broom at the university, you could get any job at all, and then you get to go to classes for free. So I just started applying left and right, and they gave me that job. So I wish I could say I really thought about it, but it was kind of the the first thing I got. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, Well, you did say, so you were teaching, though, right, for 10 years, you said? I worked at the university for 10 years in procurement ah, to, okay, get okay. My, to get my degree and then to get my teaching credential at night. Got it. Got and it. I went to like half time to get that. And then when I moved to Arizona, um, I taught seventh and eighth grade writing for just part of one year. But I realized almost, I mean, I did student teaching for another year, but I realized almost immediately I was like, it was so stressful. I was losing weight, not sleeping well. And I was like, mm-hmm. this, it's just, it was really tricky, honestly. Like I had devoted a lot of time, and I thought that was going to be my identity. So it took me a while to kind of come to terms with not being a teacher and and going back to, you know, this job that I thought was just going to be this temporary thing. But I've grown to really like it. I like the feeling of like saving our organization money, and I like to think like I just saved our organization money on this contract. Now we can go use that for other things. I don't know. It always gave me a really good feeling, especially when I was working at the university. I was like, yeah, that money I saved is going to like help us keep tuition down or, or have the fees not go up as much this year. Yeah, no, I think that's like great. And I think it's um, hopefully very inspiring for anyone listening who is starting out with a just uh, a lower paying job. And it also shows like you went you really thought teaching was going to be your thing. And when you went to try it, like you were like, wait a second, it's not. And this one job, like you just said, that it was just something you were just doing just to get your degree for teaching because you thought that was your path, ended up being the vehicle that's allowed you to hopefully by the time you're 40, right, reach finan- like complete financial independence. So I think it's fascinating because some people feel so stuck or they don't see a light, but it's like literally sometimes it's just moving forward, even though you might not know the end result and looking out for opportunities and keeping your eyes open. That really helps a lot. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that if this is not obviously feasible for everyone, but Mm -hmm. if you can look at universities and see to click on their staff page and their benefits, it's not that uncommon for staff at a university to be able to take free or drastically reduced classes. It worked for me. I don't obviously this is not scalable for everyone. Not everyone can work at a university, but it is something to consider. Um, And then I think procurement's a great field. And 
I think it's something where if you see opportunities for an entry level uh, buyer or contract manager position, apply. What kind of experience do you need for a job like that or degrees are they looking for? There are very few colleges that offer a procurement or a supply chain management degree. There are some, but I think it's a wide variety of bachelor's degrees. I do think, I mean, they hired me with just an English degree and they hired me with no, with no degree mm-hmm. <laughs> when mm-hmm. I first came in. Obviously, I don't think that you'll come in at necessarily a top wage, but I, I think it's a good field and it moved up. And for somebody who maybe got a degree in something that isn't panning out for them, it's something to look into. We do see a lot of attorneys in this field as well because we work with contracts and we mm-hmm. negotiate. So that seems like something where that's a natural transition for people who have a JD and wanted to transition to something else. But we have humanities majors and, and there's certainly people without a college degree as well that I know in the field. Right, right. Yeah. And you're talking about six figures. If you work with like a private company, you can potentially earn six upwards of six figures or I think it's pretty more. common now, yeah. In the private yeah. industry for somebody with some years of experience, I think that's a very, very common salary um, is low six figures. Yeah. Awesome. And one of the things you said is like you don't think everyone necessarily is possible for everyone to work in a university or that this is not maybe something that everyone can do. And I do want to talk about that. So one of the things that pulled me to wanting to have a conversation with you on the podcast was that you definitely don't shy away from having discussions about like the middle class and inequities in this system and making it so like, how can we talk about financial independence in a way that's more accessible? Is it realistic for many people to actually reach and with such different starting points and such economic disparity and all these things, right? Especially like in America and like just this institutional stuff that's been going on for, you know, hundreds of years, right? Like you see today with the wealth gap and everything. So I'd like to touch on that because I think a lot of people, yeah, I think a lot of people listening, you know, I think the leaders, not the leaders, right? But the people who have the highest or biggest platforms, sometimes they shy away from this, these conversations, like is financial independence accessible for the common person, for the average person, for a minority. And I'd like to go there because I feel like you talk about this. So what is your opinion on this? I mean, is financial independence achievable for everyone? No. I like to look at the income breakdowns at income quintiles is how I like to to break it down because it's, you know, we're talking about millions of people and, you know, it's just, it's hard, I think, for a lot of us to start talking about like big groups of people. What about this situation? And there's these exceptions. And I know this one person who did it, blah, blah, blah. So I just like to look at the numbers and see what they tell me. So the first income quintile for 2017, which is the latest data that I had available for our last post on this. The upper limit of that is 24,638 for a household. That means 20% of the households in the U.S. are earning less than 24,600. I mean, financial independence is so far out of the reach of that Mm -hmm. group. So let's talk about the next quintile, which I think it was like the lower middle class. That's 24,639 up to 47,000. And you look at 47,000, you're like, well, Brian, your budget was, it's 35,000. So there's that gap there. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, we paid off the mortgage. Mm -hmm. Like you have to put housing back in there for everybody. And when you look at 47,000, people are going to say like, oh, well, there's not that many federal income taxes at that rate. I was like, yeah, there aren't, but there's social security taxes. There's medical, there are Medicare taxes. In most states, there's going to be a state income tax. And a lot of the tools that the fire community uses to kind of propel themselves forward at such a fast rate are things like maxing out a 401k, maxing out two 401ks, maybe a 457 and an IRA. Okay, so at $47,000, you can't even come close to maxing that out. When you account for the taxes that we were talking about, you're right back down to that $40,000 budget that I think is like a, a reasonably frugal bare bones budget, depending on where you live, it might not even be attainable there. So that's 40% of households in the U.S. that I, I personally think can't even make progress towards financial independence, let alone actually achieve it in the sort of times that you you see publicly available. 
I feel like it's an open secret in the financial independence community. The one thing that most of us have in common are very high incomes, you know, much higher than average. You know, the median household income, I think, is about 60, mid 60s. And I feel like when you look at the average person achieving fire in these states, you're like double that. And and that's fine. And, and I'm not begrudging anyone's success. I'm really not. Uh, and I'm in this boat, too. But like... If you're not having an average income, how are we so sure that the average person can do what you do? Mm-hmm. Is I, that too I, much? No, <laughs> it's not. This is okay. – no, let's keep going. <laughs> let's keep going because these are the conversations that need to be had because I've interviewed a lot of people. And in my situation, the way I was able to save, you know, like I'm one of those people who had that big headline, that savings and investing headline that some people were like roll their eyes at like, really? Like that's like more than what I make, you know, and you're saving that where I saved 169. Well, we saved, right? That's a big part of it. My husband and I together saved 85 in one year and then like 84 in another year. That was directly because of our income. And everyone that I've spoken to, even if they are frugal and only spend like 30,000 a year, it's because it's like by choice, but they're earning a lot of money to be able to accomplish their goals. So like if they had debt, like pay off that debt, uh, start saving, investing, maxing things out. And so I like agree with you. I think for me, it's like, okay, how can we make this more accessible? So we're going to talk more about what people can do. And I mean, the obvious answer for a lot of people is they need to earn more money and that should be like a focus. But I think it's good that we can have real discussions like this because when people also just like shame people for like how much they spend or, oh, like anyone can do it. I think it's kind of one of those things where that's what turns people off because their their real life situation, depending on, especially if they've come from like poverty where it wasn't a choice to spend like $20,000, like you're choosing to spend $20,000 because it's like fun to you. That can seem really just like unbelievable. So I always say like, I started to also like change or think differently about financial independence and think about like the scale of it or the journey itself, which is why, you know, journey to launch, where it's just like, yeah. that's a noble thing to, to go after. I think that most people won't be able to reach ultimate financial independence where they never have to work again. Like that, I think is going to be reserved for people who can increase their income and like have the chutzpah and all that. And some of it luck, a lot of it hard work to do that. But is there a way for better like work options and work flexibility? I think more people can find that in their life so that they have more options. So they're not necessarily always at a job that is soul sucking. Like, can they find other ways to find meaningful work while on this journey so that they can enjoy life on the way? I feel like that's been my kind of, especially since like I've started, it's more about how can you reach work flexibility where even if you don't intend to never work again or not to stop working, you can finally maybe take a full maternity leave or stay at home for that extra year. But you know that you might have to go back to work because that's just part of just your the way your journey looks. So I think it's just everyone's situation is so different. And so it's hard to paint right. this wide brush, you know? No, you're right. And that's the thing. And I know, depending on the leanings of somebody listening to this, they probably know somebody who was in those lower income Quintiles who has made it out of there or, or, or lived in such a low cost living area that they were frugal. So I'm really talking about like what I feel is like the aggregate looking at the group as a whole. There's going to be exceptions of people who, who do. So I don't ever want to make it seem like, well, if you, if you earn this small amount, like you can't have it. Obviously, like I was earning in the second quintile for my whole twenties. So like obviously it's possible, but I'm never going to say like, oh, if I did it, you can do it because um, that makes a lot of presumptions, I think, on my experience being the exact same as anybody else's if they just want it to or they try hard enough. And I I don't know. I don't buy that. Yeah. Yeah. And let's talk about your background a bit, because I think that's like because it's like we're talking about people um, of different just starting points. And some of that includes like. Where you were born, if you're, you know, family, if you come from a family of immigrants, if you yourself immigrated here, if you're a minority, I think all that, it's one of those things where I think we need to acknowledge the differences and different starting points. But then for those who, who want to push past that, if they can, if they have the, cause I think it t- takes a little bit, it does take a bit of a drive and chutzpah to be able to like push through some of this, these mental blocks and these actual like institutional blocks that something else is available for them. 
But I think it's from your perspective, if you can give a little bit about your background, what shaped your outlook on life? Like, can you talk a little bit about your background and upbringing on this stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my mom is Filipino and she immigrated here in the 70s and met my dad in San Francisco. And I was born here. But, you know, I was raised by parents of different backgrounds and I myself you know, a mix of I'm half Asian and I'm half white. And as far as how that shaped me, I I grew up in Pittsburgh and there wasn't like a lot of other people like me there. Uh, and there wasn't like a strong community where I grew up in like suburban Pittsburgh. So my mom really, I think, emphasized as much as, I, as she could, like the strategy that I think she had for me was like fit in. Like they would not teach me Tagalog. My dad and my mom agreed. We're like, that's just going to confuse you and assimilate and fit in and really focus on school. I mean, that's something that my mom, I mean, that was school was everything for me growing up. I got grounded a week for every B on my report card. Oh once my I got a C. I was grounded for three months straight until the next report card because I got a C in handwriting uh, back in like third grade. And I think this is common, like uh, we were talking about before, within a lot of immigrant communities, is that education is the path forward. Education is the ladder up. So I think that that shaped my worldview a lot. I wanted to be an educator, and I, I still believe so much in the power of education. But it also is really frustrating to me about how inaccessible education is and mm-hmm. and how it's not that common. I mean... I think a lot of people with college degrees get this feeling that everyone has a degree. And I've heard that a lot too. Like, oh, a bachelor's is so common now. You need to get a graduate degree. You know, I think it's something like 35% of all Americans over the age of 25 have a college degree. It's not that common. About two thirds of people who are adults don't have that. And, and cost is certainly part of that. And, and the failings of our public education system are part of that. And, you know, we're talking about how can we make financial independence more accessible to people? How can we address the fact that large swaths of our population aren't making enough to save for retirement or to just make ends meet? Well, if education is going to be the way out of that, we have to address the fact that we're not sending enough of our students ready to go to college and we're not making it affordable and we're frankly not all saving enough or not able to save enough to help our children pay for it. And I, I don't know the answer to that stuff. I don't know how in this era of automation and outsourcing what the solution is for people who for myriad reasons, uh, weren't able to go and get a degree. Yeah. So I interviewed Scott Young, and depending on when your podcast episode comes out, his would have been released or maybe not, but it's his book is called Ultra Learning. And in it, it says like there is no middle class or the like average is not okay anymore because what's happening is like all the jobs are even being pushed up to more like higher skilled, higher paid or more lower skilled that can't necessarily be automated. And then mm-hmm. everything in the middle gets like automated or outsourced and that's like the threat for like the middle class, why the middle class actually is like in the worst position because like that you'll be, if you, if you're just going to be average, then you're going to have like less options. And then like you said, this education, I'd like to touch on that, on that because I do find that, and it might just be because I I'm Jamaican. So that was one way that that's the reason why I'm who I am today is my mom also pushed education. She saw that as her way out as being a young single mom, immigrated here without anything at 20 years old. And then I was like, she had me at 20. So, you know, it's kind of crazy, like for her to come here and like, she just like wanted to go to school. And for her and me, when she was raising me, it was all about education. Now she wasn't as strict as your mom, but it was really important for me, right? Like that, like that was like just the baseline. And now my mom is actually, she works in a school system. So she's a social worker and my husband is a teacher and they work in different areas. But, um, I see com- the common problem because they both teach kind of like inner cities, a majority like black kids. And I really feel like some of the kids are not really being prepared properly for the next level. And some of the same things that are supposed to be helping them. So 
like there's no child left behind and mm. this kind of handholding, which yes, it's needed in some cases, but it's actually more harmful because they might do well in their respective like class, but by the time they get to the real world, like now it's time to go to college where they don't really do that. Like it's more self-study and you have to be a self-starter and all these things they're realizing like, wow, like a lot of these kids are not ready. And so I wonder how many kids, like you said, what one third of uh, people or 25% have college degrees. I think it's like a little over, a little over that. It's like 35 or 36%. 35. Okay. Yeah. And I wonder how many people like tried to go and either dropped out because they couldn't like do it and or couldn't afford it. Right. Like, so there's Absolutely. like these people who attempt it, but for whatever reason can't finish. I think there's just so much. It's like such, there's so much like going on because I think like you said, education is like the key. It's like the key to anything, but you also have to be smart about how you're paying for it. So like kids are not starting out at such a disadvantage with so much debt. And then there needs to be, it needs to be accessible, but they need to be prepared. Like it can't just be for the sake of getting a degree. You also have to like retain information that you can apply in the real world. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, Eileen left, but I am not so naive as to think that enough money will solve this problem. Like certainly, even if we just made college free, which would be amazing, but that doesn't solve the fact that, you know, a lot of students aren't stepping in on their freshman year ready to write a composition, ready to do that analysis, ready to read and discuss the text. It's not just a money problem, but a lot of it's a money problem. I mean, let's talk about the system of how we fund education. Property taxes are a huge contributor to how schools are funded, and property taxes are very different in some parts of town than they are in other parts of town. And if we're going to create a tax system to fund education based off of how much the land underneath your house is worth, well, the places that have high property values are going to have really good schools, and the places that don't aren't. And that is a flawed system. And you know, I've written about this on the blog before that, you know, the policies that we set up and the way that we choose to tax and then distribute those taxes, that matters. It matters a lot because teachers aren't paid a whole lot in this mm-hmm. country. And and that's a choice. You know, that's that's a policy choice that we make every election cycle um, on how we're going to tax our our collective revenue. And then what we're going to spend it on. Yeah. And the thing is, it's like there's so many layers, right? And there's no one linchpin that's going to like, so like you said, solve everything. And while it's not yeah. money, it's like, so we have to acknowledge, I always say like when they say money can't buy happiness, I um they said, but that's if you're shopping in the wrong place, like money can buy like <laughs> happiness, like if you're shopping in the right place. And then like, I always like to qualify like, yeah, it's not about money, but at a certain point, once you're past there's diminishing returns on like how much you start making. But I think for so many people who are living at or just surviving, like just trying to pay bills, like that seems ridiculous. Cause they're like, well, yeah, money will solve this problem. If I had enough to pay off this debt and like, you know, pursue this, it would help. And then you do get to a point where simultaneously while working for like, or trying to get more money or earn more, there's just different layers on this wealth thing. Like it's not just, earning more. It's a big part of it, but it's also like managing it. And like a lot of just, uh, I think mindset stuff, which I know people like sometimes people just like roll their eyes at, but it's like a big deal. Cause if you don't think you could do something, you're not going to do it. Right. If everyone's telling you, you can't do something or you haven't seen it around you. Right. So a lot, for a lot of people, they might not have heard about financial independence or it's never, it's not even been a possibility, but then, you know, you hear about this thing, you see someone who looked like you or who had similar experiences being being able to do something, it might like put a little spark in you and say, wait a second, I wonder what I can do differently in my life. Like maybe what what are some things that I can start changing um, internally instead of waiting for the system? So I think there's just a myriad of like things that a person can try to do. And of course, like you can't change everything. I love this Martin Luther King quote or this thing that he said, he said, it's cruel to tell a man to pull a boot, to tell a bootless man to pull himself up from his bootstraps. Absolutely. Because, you know, part of it's like, yeah, you know, do what you can. Like, don't worry about what the system is doing. But, yeah, a lot of what the system is doing is affecting people. I was so excited to come on your podcast because one of the things I, I love so much about it is that it does challenge my worldview. Like a lot of the times 
I view things in this way that I, I feel is, is sympathetic where I'm saying like, look, it's not, like you said, it's not fair to tell somebody earning in that first quintile, you know, less than $24,000 be like, well, just cut some things out of your budget and maybe, you know, don't buy coffee. And then these things are going to be available to you. But I love hearing you and your guests talk about the positivity of it and just being like, yeah, if you see it and there is that potential in everybody to improve and to raise your income and to do these things. So like that's a dichotomy I struggle with all the time. And any individual person, that person can reach financial independence. An individual's potential cannot, I mean, we don't know and it's, it's there. But when we look at the group as a whole, that's like saying like, okay, if I sit down at a poker table at the World Series of Poker, I could end up in the money. I could win. But if you looked at all of us, like we all can't end up in right. the money. If we all go to Vegas, we can't you all, can't all win. win. Yeah. It's a good point because I actually, just like I don't think everyone should be entrepreneurs. Like I don't, there needs to be people who work for people and that's totally fine. Like there's things that you're right. Like I don't actually expect, I think some of it is self like selection. And like, so if you're like listening, if you kind of scrolled and found this podcast and said, Hmm, this sounds interesting. You started listening. I think you have more like chances than someone who would like look at, Oh, this person retired at like 34. Ugh, I can't do that. Like you probably have more chances. So some of it is like, if you're probably listening to this, you know, it's like, unfortunately it's selection of like, and I am sure there's a more technical term. I just don't know it, but there's like these selections of like groups where no, I don't think the entire, the entire population can't because one, they just don't think they can. And there are just things that they don't want to fight through because to get to this level requires work. Like, it's not just like, Oh, close your eyes. And like, it will all come to you. Like, that's not like really how it works. You do need to get uncomfortable. You do need to stretch yourself and do things probably no one around you has ever done before. And that's scary and takes a lot of guts. And so a lot of people are not ready for that. And so every time I've leveled up, like done something different, whether it was like attempted to, you know, save as much as we save and did it, quit my like safe job to pursue entrepreneurship, even like earning money as an entrepreneur is a whole different ball game. Like all these mm-hmm. levels where people will look at the outcome and say, Oh, that seemed easy or wow, like you were able to do that. And it's like, it took so much internal work first to believe that I can do it and to actually like do it. And so a lot of people are stuck in this place where no, like a lot of people are not even, it's too hard. They thought one, they don't believe they can do it and it's too hard. But I think if you're like, hopefully listening to this, it ups your chances because (laughs) there's something about it that is pulling you. So if you're not, and some people listening, like not everyone that listens, there are a lot of people who listen to this podcast that earn good money are doing well, like on the income side and it's not that. And you talk to them and they still feel like they're living paycheck to paycheck. Mm -hmm. So there's like so many like different starting points and blocks and all these things. And I, but I did really want to talk about the middle class part because I do know I have a lot of people doing that. What can, right? So in the meantime, what can people do? So I know there's like things that, you know, there needs to be some policy changes and things that might overall help. But what are your views? I mean, even speaking to your own experience, because it's you did it yourself in terms of increasing your income. But what are some things that people who find themselves in this predicament, like, wow, like not not making enough, like or there's these things kind of pushing against me. How can they up their chances to be able to do this? Mm, That is such a tough one, because I like thinking about it in terms of. Of making improvements to our system. But obviously, the individual is a huge part of that, too. So I don't want to do the cliche things here. One, if you're trying to reach for financial independence or even just other goals, like I would like to save a little bit towards my child's education or things like that, you do have to understand how much you're making on a regular basis and what your bills are and the, the difference between those. So you have to do some tracking. If the problem, like it is for a lot of people, like you're not making enough income, I think there are some things that we did that helped. Uh, when we were living in San Diego, my wife and I never had our own place, ever. We would rent a room in a house. When we moved here to Arizona, we were just used to it. We'd never, neither one of us had ever had our own place. So we rent our first house at 1,276 square feet. 
how on earth could two people take up all this space? Should we rent out one bedroom or two? And we rented out a bedroom and then used that income to accelerate our plans and, and at that point was paying down the mortgage. That's something that I think sharing your housing expenses, we still drive like an 06 Toyota. We could upgrade the car, but we still really like it and it runs and I think it's great. <laughs> so yeah. we haven't. I mean, obviously we could afford it. So things like that are helpful. But I, the whole time I'm saying these things, I just feel like bad because the reality is, is that like I'm talking about these like frugal hacks. And honestly, people who are lower income are probably way better at frugality than me. Um, yeah. You know, their income dictates they have to be. Can I just oh, yeah. jump in? Because you said, yeah, and I forgot where I heard this, but why some people roll their eyes at financial independence or like all these hacks is like, are you kidding me? Like we've been doing this for years, like in terms of like oh, sharing God. a room yeah. with their family members or like not even having money to have a car. So it's just like, you're just, you're basically taking like what poor and like, <laughs> they're appropriating like, right. You're appropriate. Like, now. yeah. Cause you're just like, Oh, I'm doing this. This is cool. And it's like, no, like, hello. Like we have to do this. To <sighs> and they're survive. so clueless about it too. Like they think that they discovered it. They're like, let yeah. me tell you about this thing I figured out. But again, it's oh. like that side of the expenses that you're managing. And it's like the other side that like the income, that's why I feel like more of my stuff is going to be definitely focused more on income, increasing income as like in, in, on my journey. Cause I know that's like, that's the thing. And um, a lot of that starts from like seeing opportunities where there are none. And like, there are some people right now who have the opportunity to reach some of their goals by doing some of what you said, but it's, sure. that is very uncomfortable because they're working hard. They're used to this life or they're used to this thing. The other thing that comes up is that, um, a lot of us, if we come from poverty or we, you know, families that had poverty and didn't have much, it's kind of just like, so essentially like we work this hard for us to like stay in the same place. That's what it feels like for some people because, right. you know, like you're supposed to do better. You're supposed to show that you're doing better. Like, and then now it just looks like you're doing like what my grandmother did when like they didn't have, you know, well, this is like back in Jamaica. Like, you know, they didn't have running water all the time and they didn't have these things that these luxuries that we have now. That's what it seems like for some people. That's why sometimes I feel like it's so hard because especially what I've realized when you've worked hard or you feel like you've, you tie up your outer worth with kind of like material stuff and it's not like a dig or anything bad, but it's almost just like you want to show that you made it. It feels good to maybe buy something that a few years ago you wouldn't be able to buy or buy something maybe generations ago they wouldn't even like let you in the store. So I think some of that is kind of like I'm showing like I can afford this now and it feels good. Yeah. And it's a very convoluted or just it's hard for some people because I get it. I totally get it because I remember I got my first luxury car. I had like a BMW in my 20s. This is when I was like nice. in my life. And I felt like I arrived. I was in like I was living in Dumbo in New York City. And I was like, I'm going to get a nice car. And I was like the only like black person in the building. And I'm like, I have to show like I am like I've arrived. Right. Like that was yeah. part of it, too. Because if I felt so prideful and it was just like, I know you maybe never seen someone like you never thought that I could be here and do this, but I'm showing you that I can and doing it in style. And I feel like not to say that's what everyone's doing, but I think some of that is that kind of like, I'm going to show you that I'm just as, you know, worth it as you are kind of thing. Absolutely. And I think personally, I think that's valid. I think that that stuff, I, I hate spending shaming it is a pet peeve of mine you know money is fungible it doesn't matter what you spend it on you know what matters is the context of like do we have enough money to still meet our other goals or not or did this did this purchase that is again it's valid like we're not just automatons like we have emotions and we have psychological needs like look at maslow's hierarchy of needs like the the belonging of feeling like you're part of a group that's that matters and that stuff is valid and that's why i think you know so much of what i would rather focus on is like, how do you raise income? So there's been some things that have worked for me that I could talk about a little bit. My biggest changes in income have come when I have left an employer. Sticking with an employer for me has resulted in very small raises and mediocre bonuses. But whenever I have looked outside, the raise I got in between my jobs, that's what's driven me. Uh, like we were talking about before with education, it's so key that the different average salaries between someone with a bachelor's degree and someone who does not have a bachelor's degree or just has some college are very stark. I think the number that I've seen is a million dollars over a working career. 
And that's compounded by the fact that college graduates fare so much better during recessions and one's coming. So I'm one of the few people who would say like the number one debt that I think people should be open to taking on is student loan debt. I think it's a good deal, even at these inflated prices, if it's the only way that you're going to be able to get the degree and please get the degree, do it. Don't let the cost be the thing that kept you from going and studying something that you're passionate about to go after a career that you're passionate about. And in my experience, even pursuing a career that didn't end up being my ultimate career, that degree has opened up so many doors has gotten me past it. When applying for jobs, things that have helped me, look at the job description, look for keywords. There are a lot of companies that will use a software to do the initial cut down on resumes and things from your experience. Not everything can fit on that one page easily. So look through the job description, find the things that Oh, I have done that or yeah, I did achieve that on that one project and alter your resume to call that out to say like I have that ex- experience. It's going to help with that software first pass. It's going to help with the HR person and with the hiring manager looking at that and it's going to make you highlight the parts of your, your experience that are really relevant. And then, um, something I would recommend to a lot of people, you know, show your resume to somebody else. You know, I think a lot of people have blind, we all have blind spots. Yeah. With our, mm-hmm. and it, you know, we think it sounds clear and good because you know your own experience and you're like, Oh, I was talking about someone else is going to be able to point out those gaps on your resume. And I would say, you know, highlight the things on your resume that are your achievements, the things that you, you actually did. I, I see a lot of them that look kind of like a job description. Like these are the actual tasks that. Yeah, I not the results. The like here are the exactly. results and what this amount it amounted to for the company. And then totally. kind of like you're saying, um, also look at what's, cause sometimes you might be going after something totally different, like a, something, a totally different type of job, but it's the sil- same skill set. And so you have to totally. prove that with your cover letter and or resume. Absolutely. Well, I don't agree with everything in the book. 48 Days of the Work You Love has been a book that I will recommend to people when they're in a job search. And a lot of this advice comes straight out of there. So, um, what is the name Those of that the, again? I will add that to the episode show notes. 48 Days to the Work You Love. And even though it has like some pretty strong religious messages within it, I have found that the career advice to be fairly sound. And I have had good luck with it myself uh, whenever I'm looking. So apply to jobs. If the income is the problem, you know, be willing to look elsewhere and apply for jobs. And it's like T-ball. You you can take as many swings as you want. You only need to get that one hit. So um, don't be discouraged if um, if you don't get it the first time. Yeah, and keep swinging because, like so, you said, you you might miss a lot at first. If it was easy or simple, everyone would be doing it. It's not like you know, like you're not always going to hit that first ball. So I do like that. And then I want to make the point about college. I agree that getting an e- a higher education is important, but you still could be smart about it, right? Like so, it's like. You know, look at the different schools. Like, don't, if you're going to pick a school for, and I have a couple episodes about this in terms of education. So I'll also put these in the show notes, but based on your degree and what you want to do, there's like a multiplier. I forgot the exact, but I think it's like, don't take out more than one, your first year salary, or it's like, it's a multiplier. So it's like, be smart about like the, what your potential career, the outcome can be. Even if you're going after something more passionate versus money, don't get like a $300,000 student loan debt to then maybe only earn when you did your research, this career, the first couple of years only really has the potential to make 40,000. Right. Right. I mean, it's tough. I, I personally feel like if there's something that you, that you love, I mean, I got a degree in English. <laughs> I went to a private school for the first two years, dropped out and then graduated from a state school. So I had my debt from the expensive school and I didn't even get the degree there. And it it did happen to work out. I don't know if that's going to be everyone's experience. I think it is good, obviously, to minimize the debt, certainly. Um, but I, I don't know. I feel like people should pursue the thing that they want to. I mean, these are very young people. And I'm just a big believer generally in the degree. I totally agree. I don't think that Three hundred thousand dollars. Oh, is that what's happening now? Is that common? well? I've heard. I heard that's not oh, like no. I'm being. I'm being very like. But I know there are people with um over a hundred thousand, and like it's not even. Uh, we know you would expect maybe that with a 
medical degree or a lawyer, right. but that is not even that. And they have that much debt. Yeah, that's rough. I mean, obviously, we're talking about like things that individuals can do, but I feel like there's so many more opportunities for like policy and for like changes to the system to like make that better. Because I mean, these are very young people that we're giving that sort of debt to. Man, oh man, that's got to be tough starting out like that. Like, I think when I left my school after two years, I had like just under thirty thousand dollars of debt from just the two years. Yeah, um, and then I went and, like I said, I I transferred in and started working at the a different school in California. But I mean, the number. I mean, that's that seems like nothing now, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, and my debt. So when I graduated, I think my student loan debt was in the twenties. Also, it was like twenty five. So again, very was reasonable, especially for the amount of money I was making. When I graduated from college, I started making fifty five thousand a year and I, and I grew it to six figures over time being with that company, but it was something I can manage. Right. Whereas some people like their whole entire, or a lot of their paycheck is going to that. I think too, what's going to happen for a lot of people is that our kids, so the generation after us, unfortunately we, we are this generation that we are, we're lucky to get to kind of escape it without too much student loan debt, even though we had it. But for a lot of people who had experiences and if they're having children, they are hopefully um, guiding their children differently in how to make choices and how much debt to take on. And so that those conversations, even though it's like a crime to even give this much leeway and like to ha- let this happen with some of these kids, if they don't have any guidance, but hopefully a lot of the parents. So I know for me, like my kids are going to be so much more equipped with my guidance in helping them decide what school is best. And should they, how, how can I help them? And what comes to the point where they need to like help themselves, but you know, think about how much loans you're going to take. Like those conversations did not happen in a lot of households and hopefully they're going to happen a lot now. Yeah. I'm, I'm hopeful. And I think you're doing such good work here and getting good advice out there. And um, yeah, I'm hoping that, that things get better for, you know, for all of us. I think that's what's missing a lot from like the dialogue about this stuff. It's like, yeah, I mean, obviously you and your your family that's got to come first but like you know we're all in this together like we're a, we're a society and like you know we have to always be thinking about like what's going to help those of us who really need that you know because mm-hmm. you know, we're in this together man yeah 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 i often think about that like so while everyone might not be able to reach maybe the levels that you're reaching so retiring at 40 or reaching financial independence i should say by 40 or even being able to do what i did then like it's our responsibility, which is why I feel like, you know, part of this work is really, even if it's not going to be people who can do everything that I'm saying, it's more about bringing awareness to the situation. And like, I'm thinking like, for me, that's why I'm now like charged. Like I want to make money. Like I'm no, there's like, I want to earn as much as I can too, because that will help me to do more work. Some of the work that I can now donate my time to, right? Like to more just literacy, right? So it's like different, like just literacy. There's some people who who don't have access to like listen to a podcast. Like, I mean, there's internet, you think like internet's all over the place, but they don't even know how to access it or about budgeting or these like things that we find like, okay, I can just Google that. And that's not actually that simple for a lot of people. So how can I even give my time back on a more just basic level to help people just get started so that they have a better chance, at least, of doing this. Absolutely. And I love that idea of like just giving them a better chance. And um, I read a really interesting book a while ago, uh, Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. And it's like total. now I see everything within this framework, which is that, you know, all of our outcomes, our decisions are part like skill and effort. And it's part luck. And both those things are like totally always in play. And and something that we should be thinking of is like, how do we give people a better chance? Like you say, like, all right, luck's going to play a role in this. Like maybe you were born in a specific neighborhood. Maybe your home didn't have a really high income growing up. That's the luck part of that situation. How do we give people a better chance? Is that a guarantee that things are going to get better? No. Mm-hmm. But I mean, and, yeah, yeah, it's it helps. Yeah. And then also like for people who have been born in that way, like look at how that's an opportunity because I always say like being born to a single mom at such a young age, like I was, I think I was very lucky to have her as a mom, but she also like her, what she did was not luck. Like part of it. Yeah. Like she got the okay to come to the States, 
where like that was very like lucky on her end because she could have very well not gotten her papers to be able to come here, which would have definitely my life would have looked different. So part of that is luck. But then I think about how many people are growing up, you know, without like in single parent households or we literally like came from like nothing who are like my mom almost who had a lot of disadvantages. But despite that, like her biggest thing, I think when she had me was she like, she knew she wanted something different. So despite all the things she had experienced, she was like, I don't care. I'm going to give my last and invest my last in Jamila to make it. And then I think about me and I'm just like, well, I didn't, you know, grow up. I, I, we got better as we got, I got older in terms of like disposable income and doing more. But I look at like even not having a father growing up how that has driven me to be so self-sufficient, right? Versus looking at it the other way. And I know not everyone can like has the power to do that, right? But that's the kind of stuff where someone will look at as a disadvantage. I look at it as I don't know if I'd be the same person if I was if I grew up with some of the privileges that people assume are privileges. I mean, that's true. You never know how those things are going to impact us. I mean, that's that's truth. But like when I think about my mom also an immigrant and like she got very lucky compared to her brothers and sisters. She was one of nine, I think three, three of her siblings are now in the U S I mean, that's a huge like break. But Mm -hmm. I remember whenever I got my job at, when I first transitioned out of teaching and I was working at this corporation, she's like, how much is the salary? And I told her, you know, it was in the the sixties at the time, which was, you know, it was a huge break for me. And she was so happy for her. She told me, she's like, Brian, my whole life I've been trying to get that sort of number. Like all through my 20s, I never made 20000 All through my 30s, I never made $30,000. My 40s, I never made 40000 My 50s, I never made $50,000, not once. And then when she was in her 60s, she was working at a bank and she just hustled with like loan applications and she got some incentives and bonuses. And she's like, finally... One year in my 60s, I made over $60,000. I was so happy. I was like, oh, I've been wanting to get my whole time. I started crying. Jamila, mm-hmm. I was, because I mean, in this career change where I felt like I was giving up on teaching, I was feeling sorry for myself. Now I'm selling out <laughs> and mm-hmm. going to this job. And like, it's this number that my mom had to work her whole life to get. And I'm like feeling kind of like meh about it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And my mom raised me and she has faced discrimination as a woman and as a, as an immigrant who's always going to have like a thick accent and that, and it has always shown up in like her income. But like you said, I mean, that's the thing. And then that makes her, her, and that makes me, me. And there are like obviously advantages to that too. But I also, I see like just the discrimination. Yeah, no. Yeah. Like, some of it you can't get, some of it you can't get like past, even if you will it. Especially our, I think our gen, like our parents who had less resources available to them and, and examples, right? Or people helping them like the way that nowadays there's a little bit more access. It's just more about pointing people to those resources. Yeah. Totally. I feel like she works so much harder than I did. Yeah. And here I am kind of like, yeah, I work hard, but like, not like my mom worked hard. Yeah. (laughs) There's that that too. There's that guilt. I think there's a lot of guilt too that comes with, um, having money and earning, even though that's what we want. If you're the only one or you're one of a few that have, and then you see, like you, you can probably see or know people in your family. I know people in my family where, you know, I can see where maybe they can do different things differently for sure. That's for sure. But I can also see how hard they worked. And so it's just like, oh, wow. Like why me? Like, I kind of know, like, I feel like, aren't we all supposed to like be able to have the same access or these same things? But why is it that some people are able to do this? And some people just seems like they just keep, getting the short end of the stick. And I don't know, I always, and I guess it's more of the optimist in me is that I always, while I do believe it's outside sources, a lot of it is internal, but sometimes for so many people, if you keep getting beaten down, like it's hard to fight through that and to keep going, right? I keep saying, keep swinging, you know, you're not going to hit it each time, but there's some people where it's like, I'm tired of swinging. Like I don't want to swing anymore. Yeah. I would like to make it easier for people who've had a bad run of luck. You know what I mean? Like that's all I'm really hoping for and what I try to write about on the blog is just like, yeah, I'm not arguing for some sort of like perfect world here, but like, can we just make it like a little bit fair? Could we like help a little bit more mm-hmm. <laughs> to these people mm-hmm. who've had a bad run? Why not make it more fair? Yeah. Why not make fire like more accessible to people? What What's the problem with these people who are earning, you know, these families who are earning very little of like 
changing policy, why not raise the minimum wage? Help a little bit. What's $15 an hour? Come on. Yeah. Wow. So this has been great. I really hope everyone else has enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. So Brian, tell everyone where they can find you. I'll also get some links from some of your stuff so I can put in the show notes, but just tell people where they can find you and where they can just learn more about your journey. Uh, well, I'm at doneby40.com. You can find me on Twitter. Uh, it's at doneby40 with underscores in between each word. And that's where I'm at. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks so much, Brian. It's been great. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation that Brian and I had. And, you know, it's really important that we just are able to have these kind of conversations, especially in the personal finance space where sometimes you find people get so hung up on um, acknowledging privilege or like the realities, like just because you're not living like this life or you have not come from a place doesn't mean you can't empathize, right? And try to see a point of view from someone else. And so I'm just excited to be able to bring this conversation to you. So tell me what stood out for you, if you had any aha moments or places where you were nodding your head, or maybe you disagreed, I don't know tag me on social media. Let us know. You can tag me at Journey's Launch on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. But then if you want any of the episode show notes to find out how you can get in touch with me, of course, or Brian, go to the episode show notes at journeytolaunch.com slash episode 140. Now, if you are enjoying this podcast, I haven't done this in a while, but I'm going to actually read a podcast review. So on Apple Podcasts, if you listen to this and have an Apple iPhone, then you can subscribe and listen to this in Apple Podcasts. And I always say, if you're doing that, then if you can leave me a review, that's awesome because I read everyone. And my goal is to actually get to a thousand reviews. By the time that I'm recording this, I believe we're at 848 ratings and reviews, which is awesome. So I really appreciate everyone who's took the time to leave me a review. I did want to read one review for you guys, just as a just like thanks to the person who left it. So this review is from Hopeful Reality. Hopeful Reality says, I listen to this podcast every Wednesday morning during my commute to work. The knowledge shared from Jamila and guests featured on the podcast is invaluable. As I am on my journey to debt freedom, the content here provides perspective and insight I honestly don't know where I could have learned. Thank you so much, Hopeful Reality. And I love that you listen to this on your commute. I used to do that too when I had my commute. So continue to do that. This is like the best thing to do if you're in your car is to make it your learning slash inspiration time. So happy to be able to share this information with you. Now, if you want to be able to connect with me more, make sure you're following me on social media at Journey's Launch on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. All right. Until next week, keep on journeying, journeyers. Journeyers.